Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is God's word. You may be seated. And as you take your seats, let's pray together that we might understand and become more and more doers of God's word. Father God, thank you again for the privilege that is ours to be in your presence this day, to sing your praises, to render to you songs of thanksgiving, to sing one with another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, even as, even as Paul describes here as being at the heart of worship and fellowship and our lives together in Christ. Thank you, Father, that we can come and open wide our mouths, as the psalmist said, and in Psalm 81 there, which we read earlier, knowing that You are the God who loves to fill us with what we need. And thank You, Father, that the true food and the true drink that we need is Christ and His Word. And thank You that Your Word is sufficient 
and complete and abundant and living and active and full of divine power, Father, to transform us by the renewing of our minds and conform us into the very image of Jesus and His glory and His holiness and His righteousness. And so as we come to Your Word today, we, we pray for illumination, we pray for understanding. Father, turn on the lights in our minds and our hearts that we might know what it is that You have revealed to us here, and not just understand it intellectually, but Father, appreciate it and have confidence in it, and again, be transformed in the way that we live our lives by it. And so Father, I ask that the words of my mouth... And we ask that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we come to your word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today, riding on the theme of Thanksgiving, this past week I wanted to return to a passage here in the New Testament that we visited more than once in the past, but it's it's an important enough passage that we need to come back to it often because of its necessity in our lives as Christians, and also because of our tendency as human beings to forget, especially as sinners who have been saved by the grace of God, we tend to forget the things that God reveals to us in His Word and their significance and importance to us and to our daily lives. So we're going to look together here at a single verse in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 2, and we're going to focus on the words of that specific verse, which which all hang in the context of everything Michael just read in chapter 3 about the Christian life and about putting on the righteousness and the holiness of Christ in our lives. And all of that comes to a head in verse 2 of chapter 4, where Paul says, and he says it in the imperative voice. He says it as a command. He's, he's exhorting us here to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that command, again, of course, is following right on the heels of everything that Michael read in chapter 3, where Paul is exhorting Christians to put off All of the deeds of the flesh, the sinful things that we tend to do and think and say, even the sinful attitudes of our hearts and the ways that we treat one another, to put all of that off and instead put on the righteousness and the holiness of God in a way that that is life-transforming, in a way that covers every aspect of our lives and every relationship in our lives and defines everything about us now as the people of God. Holiness needs to classify us more and more and more. And so Paul is saying here that in the pursuit of holiness in our daily lives in every single way, prayer is essential. Prayer that is continual, not just occasional. Prayer that is steadfast, he says, and not wavering kind of prayer. Prayer that is watchful and prepared for the trials and the temptations that will come our way. Not lazy, sleepy prayer. And prayer that is thankful. Even as we just celebrated Thanksgiving this past week, prayer must be driven by a spirit of thankfulness and not a spirit of entitledness or a spirit of self-serving, self-centeredness. He's describing in this verse, godly, Christ-dependent 
prayer, and he's saying that it is one of the most crucial and critical ingredients in our lives in the pursuit of holiness. You cannot pursue holiness apart from the kind of prayer that he's describing here. And so as we come to think about prayer, we're thinking about it in connection to holiness and the pursuit of holiness in our lives. And we need to first understand just how important that pursuit is. Is holiness optional for you as a Christian? Is it okay to just sort of plateau at some point in your growth and grace and say, well, at least I'm holier than the pagans out there and I don't need to pursue more holiness in my life? In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, the author urges Christians. It's a matter of, of urgency, he says, to strive after holiness in whatever ways it's lacking in our lives. And in chapter 12 of Hebrews, in verse 14, he commands us to do that. To strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, and listen to how he phrases this, strive diligently, urgently for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's how absolutely critical striving after holiness is in the Christian life. Because apart from growing, increasing holiness, characterizing our lives, there's no hope of us seeing the Lord when He returns. Because as we saw in Colossians chapter 3, it's on account of all the fleshly sin that He's telling us to put off. It's on account of all of that sinful stuff that, that the wrath of God is coming. And if we're not being cleansed from all that unrighteousness, and if we're not constantly putting on the righteousness of Christ and putting off the deeds of the flesh and growing in holiness, then when Christ comes, it will be the wrath of God that finds us. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is essential. Sanctification is not optional. And growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely critical in our lives as ongoing activity. And it's not just something that we can wait for to happen passively to us, right? You can't just sit back and think good thoughts about the Gospel and what Jesus has done to free you from the penalty of sin and wait for holiness to just sort of happen in you automatically. And when it doesn't, you say, well, it just God hasn't done that work in me yet. That doesn't cut it. Holiness is something the Word of God tells us clearly that we have to strive actively after. It's something we have to diligently pursue and practice. Those are Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's something we have to work out in our lives with fear and trembling, which is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. But at the same time, it's not something you can ever work out on your own. Striving for holiness is not anything that you can strive for in your own strength. And so Paul says there in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the work that we're required to do, the work that we must do as Christians in striving for holiness absolutely depends on surrendering to the work that God is doing in us. And the way, see, of that surrender 
and dependence on God. And, and so the pathway to holiness as we surrender to Him working in us and as we are, as we are walking along that way, the way is exposing ourselves to the life-transforming power of God in His Word and submitting ourselves to His will and to His power in our lives by communing with Him in prayer. And that has to be something that is constant. Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. You can't just go along in your own strength, striving for holiness in your own way, and when trials and temptations come and things get really, really over, overwhelming to you, and when you're in deep over your head, then you pray. Prayer has to be ongoing. Prayer has to be continual. And this is what he's teaching us here. This is the way that we submit ourselves daily to the life-transforming power of God through His Word by communing with Him in constant, steadfast, watchful, thankful prayer. And we're going to look at all of those qualifiers there in verse 2 of chapter 4 today. In the book of James, James also urges us to holiness in our lives, to be people who are sacrificially loving like Jesus was towards us, to be people who don't show partiality, but strive to love all people equally. He urges us to be people who are quick to hear and slow to speak, not just driven by our own impulses, slow to anger, people who put away filthiness and wickedness in our lives. And he says... James does in James chapter 1 and verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. And so that helps us to understand how things work according to God's word. The holiness that we have to strive for actively in our lives, because it doesn't just come to us passively, but it does depend on us receiving from God with meekness the word of God implanted in our souls. That's what James means then when he goes on and says that we need to be doers of the Word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. So, that's, that's challenging and that's confronting to us, isn't it? If, if all we are is hearers of the Word of God, if we're not yielding and submitting and surrendering to the living active power of God's Word in us, and if, if by that power of God we're not constantly putting sin to death in us and, and we're not constantly growing in holiness, then we're deceiving ourselves, James says. If you're hearing all about God's Word and you're understanding it, but you're not killing sin and you're not growing in holiness, then, then you're being deceived about everything that the Word of God means. Holiness is not optional. It's necessary. Without it, we won't see the Lord. It's not just a passive activity or reality in the Christian life that, that comes automatically to you apart from any striving on your own. Something you can't just sit back and let go and let God. Apart from striving and actively obeying. But that striving absolutely depends on a strength that we do not have in ourselves. It's a strength that only God can supply as we depend on Him. For we are His workmanship, right? Doesn't Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what you're made for. To live in holiness and obedience. To do good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works. 
And this is why God admonishes us in places like Psalm 81 to to open wide our mouths to Him and say, fill us because we don't have the strength that it requires. We need You to sanctify us. We need You in the pursuit of holiness to strengthen us. We have to depend upon the living and active power of God through His Word in our lives. And we do that as we come to Him in constancy in prayer. So, see, the Christian life, this is the the constant balance of the Christian life, of actively striving to be holy and also receiving from God in His living and active Word the strength and the ability to, to do that, to strive towards holiness. And we have to have that fixed in our minds at the outset because it's critically important for us to know this balance as we strive for holiness the holiness without which none of us will see the Lord. As we strive to put off sinfulness, as we strive to put on the righteousness of Christ, and as we do it by depending on the strength that God alone can provide, we absolutely have to open wide our mouths and let Him fill us, or else we will fail. And that means that gratitude, that means that thankfulness is absolutely critical in the pursuit of holiness as we focus our minds on who God is and what He has done to save us, it will be thankfulness that drives us to Him in prayer and thankfulness that characterizes our prayerful dependence on Him that then causes the Word and the power of the Word of God to be unleashed in our lives. And so this is all why Paul exhorts us here in Colossians 4.2 to pray. Because prayer is the way in which we open wide our mouths to God and receive the strength and provision that He supplies. E.M. Bounds says, prayer puts God's work in God's hands and keeps it there. It keeps us from being self-reliant and it keeps us being reliant upon God's power. W.S. Bowden says, prayer is weakness, our weakness, leaning on divine omnipotence. And that's true in every single way, every single aspect in our lives. It's not just in our weakness when we're facing adversity and trials and really, really, really hard, painful circumstances. That's not the only time we need to be prayerfully leaning on the omnipotent arm of God and trusting in His sovereign work in our lives. It's also in our weakness in every other aspect, chiefly our weakness in holiness. How many of you really want to stand before God and say, in myself, I'm really, really strong in holiness. I'm really, really close to being holy like you are holy in the way that I live and in the attitudes of my heart and in the thoughts of my mind and in the ways I treat people and and even love my enemies. I'm super, super holy. We need God, don't we? We need His grace, don't we? We need to be opening wide our mouths constantly to be filled with His strength in our weakness because it's in our failures to work out our salvation that we need to draw near to Him through prayer the most and receive grace and mercy and grow and thrive in holiness as we submit ourselves to the work that He's doing in us and turning from our own strength and depending on His. So that's why we're looking together today at at this verse which at the same time gives us a very simple exhortation 
but a very, very profound exhortation about the, the essential and non-negotiable importance of, of constant prayer in our lives as Christians, as, as these new creations that we are in Christ Jesus. So again, the verse here, verse 2 of Colossians 4, it starts out with a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a description of something that, that's happening passively to us. It's an imperative it's something that we must be actively doing. And the, uh, the command is simply continue steadfastly in prayer. Not just to continue in prayer, but to continue steadfastly in prayer. And in Greek, that's all one word that Paul uses. And it comes from a word that means to be strong. And so it's translated to, to be devoted to prayer. Or to be steadfast in prayer. It means to be persistent in prayer. To be constantly and busily and regularly engaged fervently in prayer is what Paul is commanding us to do here. That word is a familiar one in Scripture. Jesus uses it in Mark chapter 3 when He's teaching and He's healing. And the crowds and the throngs of people were pressing all in around Him. And they were ready to, to take Him and haul Him away as their king. Or they were... They were constantly trying to hinder him from the ministry that he was engaged in. And so he instructed his disciples to keep a boat ready so that the crowds weren't able to press in and crush him. So the, the disciples were supposed, to be, were supposed to be prepared, see, standing by, see, constantly at the ready to get him into the boat in case the crowds got out of hand. And that's the same word that Paul is using here when he's describing steadfast and continual prayer. It's got to be something you're, you're constantly watchful about. In Romans chapter 12, and verse 12, he puts it like this. He says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in in prayer, and it's the same word, be constant in prayer. That's the sense of this word and this, this command that Paul is giving to us here. He means don't just pray occasionally, don't just pray once in a while, be constantly engaged in prayerfulness with your God all the time. And so, putting it together, if we're going to be effective in identifying sin in our lives and killing it, and striving after holiness, and growing in grace, and being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, then we have to be steadfastly continuing, and devoted to, and constant in prayer. Which brings to our minds the question of, how do I actually do that? When a lot of times I'm talking to another person, when a lot of times I'm working, when a lot of times I'm sleeping, how do I be constant in prayer? So the question is, what does Paul mean? Does he mean that we actually have to be carrying on a verbal spoken dialogue with God constantly during every waking moment of every single day? One commentator says, they have places for people who pray out loud all day long every day, and in those places the doors lock from the outside. Crazy people do that. That's not what Paul means. It's not actually possible to be carrying on a, a verbal spoken dialogue with God all the time, constantly. We'd never be able to do anything else. We'd never be able to talk to anyone else. There are people who've tried, like, like monks holding themselves up in cold stone rooms and monasteries up on a mountain somewhere and praying out loud all day, every day. 
And maybe that sounds real spiritual to some people, but the thing about that is, is that it's actually not very deep prayer. It's just an outward exercise. It's a shallow kind of prayer that limits prayer to the outwardly spoken verbal expression. So prayer, true prayer, necessarily includes spoken words a lot of times, to be sure, but it's not limited to that verbal communication, that outward speaking with God. And if we limit it to that, then we're depriving it of its heart and soul. In the Middle Ages, Brother Lawrence said, the time of busyness, when I'm, when I'm occupied with the, the tasks that I have to do in this world, the work that I have to do, the time of busyness does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen with several persons who are all at the same time calling for different things and, and commanding my attention, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees before Him alone." possible to be prayerful when you're very busy and very distracted. How? Thomas Kelly says, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking and discussing and seeing and calculating and meeting all the demands and external affairs of, of daily life. But deep within... And this is where the true soul of prayer is, see? Deep within, behind the scenes, at a much profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, in song and in worship, in devoted dependence upon our God in relation to all of those outward things. And that's what Paul's talking about, cultivating that kind of a heart and a soul of prayerfulness so that whatever we're doing and whoever we're talking to and whatever we're busy with, we're busy with it prayerfully and independence on Him. So there is this way to be constantly prayerful, an important way, even when we can't be constantly verbal about our prayerfulness. There's a way in which, even when there's all kinds of activity happening around us and all kinds of stuff we're engaged in, there's a way where we're behind the scenes in our minds and in our hearts. Everything is framed up by the presence of our God and the sovereign providence of our God, and the goodness, and the faithfulness, and the kindness of our God. His glory, His majesty, His dominion in every single aspect of our lives, so that in all the things that we're engaged in in our lives, we're giving Him praise, and we're confessing how much we need Him, and we're acknowledging the sufficiency of His grace in everything in our lives, and we're, we're ascribing thanksgiving to Him for the good things that are happening to us. So see, here's how it works, and I've used this illustration several times before. Our minds and our hearts, our, the spiritual part of us, is like the lens on a camera. This is how a camera works, right? A camera lens takes in light and then focuses it through several pieces of glass that are curved just right, so that the light becomes focused onto the film or onto the sensor in order to create an accurate image. And if those lenses, if those curved pieces of glass inside the lens, if they're skewed or if they're not lined up properly, if they're flawed somehow, then they're going to render an image to the camera, but it's not going to be accurate. It's going to be out of focus. It's going to be distorted. And see, this is how it can work with us. 
That's how we are, created by God in His image. We're created to worship Him. We're created to be living expressions of His glory and holiness. But in our sin, everything's out of focus and distorted by our sinful desires and by worldly wisdom and by the distractions of life and by our own self-focused ambitions. And see, when we're self-focused and focused on sin and focused on worldly wisdom, what happens is this, that once the lens gets skewed by sin or pride or selfish desire or worldly wisdom, then our perspective of everything that we're taking in in life, everything that we're experiencing, every circumstance, every relationship, our perspective on all of that gets skewed, gets distorted, gets out of focus, and we're not seeing it all with reference to the reality of God's awesomeness and God's glory and God's holiness and God's kindness and God's majesty. And so then in, in, in the midst of whatever we're facing, whatever circumstance, if our focus is habitually distorted by sin, by selfishness, by pride, by, by flawed worldly wisdom that remains in us, then we're going to see things the wrong way and we're going to respond to things the wrong way. Here's what that looks like. In hard times, if we're out of focus, we'll tend towards things like discontentment and self-pity and bitterness and even vengeance. And in times of temptation, if we're out of focus, we're going to tend towards things like fleshly indulgence in sinful desire. And then rationalization of sinful behavior, justification of sin. The reason I, I, I did that and I needed to do that and it was good for me to do that, all of that comes from being out of focus spiritually. Even in good times, if we're out of focus, we're going to tend towards pride. We're going to tend towards self-importance. We're going to tend towards self-gratification. And see, when those are the attitudes of our hearts, it's because there's this inner dialogue going on inside of us where we're processing everything with reference to self instead of with reference to our God, and that's how we're out of focus. So we're saying things like, this trial that I'm enduring is unfair to me. I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything that... that, that, that means that this is something that I should be going through. Or we're looking at something that's tempting and we're saying, what does that temptation have to offer me? Because we're focused on self, right? Or we're looking at the good things in our lives and we're saying, what does this good thing mean about me and how important I must be and what a big deal I must be that I'm enjoying such success or blessing in my life instead of there being gratitude? So there's this inner dialogue where our thoughts, our instincts, our feelings are all focused on me, self, our desires. And that means that the lens of our minds and our hearts is out of focus. And so everything's distorted. But when the lens is, is properly focused, and that's what Paul is doing for us all throughout the book of Colossians. He wants us to be focused on the deity of Christ, the glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the grace of Christ, the holiness of Christ. 
Right? He spent all this time from chapters 1 through 3, and especially in chapter 3 there where Michael just read, focusing us on all of the good things about Christ and how that ought to bring our lives into focus. And when it is, our perceptions and responses to the circumstances of our lives, they don't have nearly so much to do with us as they have to do with Him. Right? When the lens is properly focused, then in times of hardship, our instinct is more tuned to trusting Him, casting our cares upon Him, praying to Him. In times of temptation, if the lens is properly focused, we're, we're more instinctively resisting the temptation than we are dabbling in it and entertaining it and indulging it because His glory matters to us more than our pleasure. And in times of goodness and blessing, we're not beset with pride. We're full of thankfulness and gratitude because He's the one who has given us so much in spite of ourselves, which again helps us to overcome the temptation. And so see, this, this inner dialogue, even in times when it's not explicitly vocalized, is a dialogue where our thoughts and our instincts and our feelings are being focused on God and His glory. Instead of saying in times of trial, what have I done to deserve this? We're saying, what does the sovereign God who is my loving Father have to teach me in this trial? In times of temptation, we're not saying, boy, this is going to feel good and how, how this is going to bless me and how this is going to benefit me and profit me more than doing things God's way, we're saying, how can I indulge in this sin which my God hates and for which He sent His only begotten Son to die? How could I sin against Him? Like Joseph said, right, in the Old Testament in Potiphar's house. That's how he resisted the temptation with Potiphar's wife. How could I do this thing against my God who is holy, who is glorious, and who has done so much for me? And in good times, we're not thinking much of ourselves and how much we deserve these good things because somehow we think that we're awesome. We're praising God for His kindness and His mercy and His grace and His goodness to us. So the inner dialogue is whether we're having reference to ourselves or reference to our God. That's what keeps things in focus or gets things radically out of focus. And the inner dialogue is prayerfulness. Sometimes, hopefully lots of times, but sometimes that gets verbalized, but not all the time. And even when it's not spoken prayer in the life that's focused on the glory of Christ, it's the constant refrain of our hearts and minds inwardly, see? And the danger is when the inner dialogue of our thoughts and feelings and instincts and attitudes becomes habitually and pervasively and consistently me-focused, me-oriented and distorted and obfuscated by my sinful desires and my pride and the wisdom of this world. And then, when we're out of focus like that, then when we pray, prayer just gets reduced to those relatively few times when we focus on God enough to talk out loud. And even then, how often does the way that we talk to God get distorted by the same 
selfishness and pridefulness and sinfulness so that our spoken prayers are mostly about telling God to do things according to what we want. A.W. Pink asked this, he says, what is prayer? And the answer is, prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude. An attitude of dependency. Dependency upon Almighty, faithful God. Prayer is a confession of creaturely weakness and helplessness. And prayer is the acknowledgement of our need and the spreading of that need before our God who is sovereign and almighty and good. And John Blanchard says, praying is much more difficult than just saying words to God. It's having a heart focused on His glory and His holiness and His will and not our own. I mean, even the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees said all kinds of words to God all the time. Any unbeliever, any pagan can say words to God. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is first and foremost an attitude. It's a disposition of our hearts. It's that constant inner dialogue of thoughts and feelings and instincts in our minds and in our hearts that that are deliberately and pervasively focused on God and on His glory and majesty and dominion and authority and holiness and goodness and faithfulness and kindness. And then that constant dialogue, that regular attitude and disposition, that gets voiced a lot of times. That gets vocalized a lot of times, right? In verbal prayer. I think this is what we see David expressing all throughout the Psalms, right? He's meditating in his mind and in his heart, day and night, he says, on the Lord and on God's wisdom and on God's ways, and then voicing it in Psalms and in prayers towards God. So verbal prayer is not all that it is. Verbal prayer is the outflow of true, constant inner prayer in the life that is pervasively focused on God. James Montgomery, prayer is the Christian's vital breath. It is the Christian's native air. Just like this mixture of oxygen and nitrogen and whatever else is in the earth's atmosphere is is what we natively breathe, and how we fill up our lungs and oxygenate our blood, prayer is that same kind of thing spiritually. In the God-focused life, prayer will be more like breathing than talking, is what Montgomery means. Luther says prayer is the sweat of the soul. It's what comes flowing out of a soul that is regularly saturated with the glory and the goodness of God like we saw last week, right? When you're squeezed by trials, when you're squeezed with afflictions, what comes out of you? What came out of Jonah when his mind was filled from youth with the Word of God and he was squeezed beyond his own means by affliction? Prayer just came oozing out of him. Even though he had been sinning against God and deliberately fleeing from God, his mind and heart were so full of the glory of God that that's what just came oozing out of him. And so our lives need to be saturated with the glory of God. But see, in a life that's not, in a life that's pervasively focused on me, on self, what verbal prayer becomes is the occasional substitute for constant inner dialogue and refrain of a heart and mind that see and respond to everything with reference to self. John Bunyan 
the great Puritan writer of the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan said, In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than a bunch of words without heart. And so when Paul is exhorting us to continue steadfastly in prayer, to be devoted and constant in prayer, he doesn't just mean making sure to fold our hands and say a lot of words a lot of times. He means cultivating a pervasively Godward disposition of mind and heart that perceives everything and responds to everything in life with reference to Him and and the reality of His glory and His goodness. So that, especially in times of need, and even in times where things are really, really good, and, 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 and in every time of temptation, what comes pouring out of us is dependence on God and thanksgiving to God and supplication, asking God for things and and confessing things to God. And cultivating that inner disposition means means regularly see on on the other, not just focusing on Him, but regularly forsaking self. Saying no to self. No, you can't just have whatever you want, self. It means... Regularly putting sin to death. It means regularly taking thoughts captive. It means regularly forsaking worldly wisdom and saying, I don't care if it's the way the world does it. I don't care if it's the way I grew up doing it and got used to doing it all my life. I'm not doing it that way anymore because I'm going to do it for God's glory now instead. Abiding in God's Word. Abiding in God's truth. Prioritizing Him and His worship above every other earthly activity. And serving Him in such a way that everything that we do, even the little stuff, right? Even the mundane things like eating or drinking, doesn't Paul say, whatever you're doing in 1 Corinthians 10, whether it's eating or drinking, do everything to the glory of God. And then it also means setting aside deliberate times to be focused, to be mindful in prayer, privately, personally, corporately, and verbalizing it and vocalizing it. But even apart from those times, it means cultivating that mindset and that attitude and that disposition of Godwardness in our souls. And so also, Paul says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that whole phrase goes together. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The phrase being watchful is a single word. It's a participle. It's a it's a verb that's functioning like a, uh, an adjective, right? It's describing the big command to continue steadfastly in prayer. How? Being watchful in thanksgiving is how we continue steadfastly in prayer. It's what it looks like and feels like. Steadfast, continual prayer is watchful, thankful prayer. The word watchful... Uh, comes from the military world. Originally, it referred to to literally setting a guard at night while most of the soldiers slept. Somebody's on guard duty watching for enemies, watching for signs that somebody's coming to threaten the troops, right? A watchman. That's what this word originally meant. It's used more than 20 times in the New Testament, several times in the Gospels. And, And there, it actually refers physically to keeping a watch. Jesus Remember, and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion, he wanted to stay awake all night and pray, and so he wanted them to stay awake all night and watch. 
but they fell asleep, right? And he rebuked them for it, right? Couldn't you watch with me even for one hour? And then he told them, you watch and you pray that you might not enter into temptation. See, he, he used their, their physical sleepiness and their inability to be watchful as a spiritual metaphor. Same word that Paul uses here. The emphasis is on being awake, it's on being alert, so that you're able to see what's going on and constantly understand any threats and respond appropriately to them. Matthew Henry says, prayer protects against spiritual lassitude, which means laziness, sluggishness, apathy and lethargy and listlessness. And that's how we get sometimes, right? We get that way physically. Whether we're just we're, we're worn out, we're tired physically, or we, or we get lazy. My wife says, hey, let's go on a walk. And I'm in my chair going, hmm, doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound like what I want to do. Not because I'm tired or worn out, but I'm being lazy. Well, so we can get that way physically. That's how the disciples were in the garden. But see, we can, the, the greater danger is that we can get that way spiritually, can't we? Spiritually lazy, spiritually apathetic, spiritually listless. Happens all the time and it happens every time. Self and my own self-interest and desire is more important to me, more significant to me than the glory and the pleasure of God. That's when I get spiritually sluggish. When selfish desire is more prominent than gratitude towards God for all of the good things that He's given me. That's when we become vulnerable to all kinds of spiritual threats because we're, we're sleeping on the watch. So we, people can become vulnerable to false teaching, to temptation, to sinful fleshly desire and sinful attitudes, worldly distractions, the schemes of the devil who wants to plant seeds of doubt or fear or greed or lust or malice in the soil of our lives, and He does it when we're lazy and not watching. So, if there was a city that was vulnerable to attack, and they set a watchman up on the wall to keep watch all night, and he fell asleep, and the enemy snuck up and got into the city, the enemy's going to do a lot of damage if he's able, unperturbed, to get into the walls of the city. It's going to be a lot harder to deal with the problem that he's causing in there or that they're causing in there if the watchman falls asleep than if he was awake. The enemy's still coming, but it's easier to deal with him out there than in here. See? So Jesus in Gethsemane stayed awake and was watchful over his soul. And was able to look past the horror of what he was about to endure on the cross and say, I don't want to do that, God. But it's not about my will. It's about yours being done. Job was able to endure agonizing loss and still avoid the temptation that his wife was speaking to him to curse God and die. Because he was watchful over his soul and he was focused on God and not self. Paul was able to suffer all kinds of afflictions and imprisonments and give praise to God and serve God without succumbing to self-pity or to despair or to vengeance or just saying, I'm done, I'm out. How? How were they able to do that? 
Joseph was able to stand in the presence of Potiphar's wife, who was literally throwing herself at him, and no one else was around. Joseph was able to resist the temptation and say, no, why? Not because he's big and strong in himself, but because he was focused on the glory and the holiness of God. And he said, how could I do this and sin against my God? Because he's around. He's here. He's watching. And knowing that, Joseph was watchful over his own soul. So you see what happened? Because the majesty and the glory and the worthiness of God were what were foremost in Joseph's heart and mind and coursing through him like a a constant spiritual refrain of prayerfulness, then when temptation came, he was ready for it. He was prepared for it. And gratitude, thankfulness towards the God who had been so good and kind and faithful and merciful to him, that's what dominated Joseph's focus and attitude. It overwhelmed any sense of sinful fleshly desire. It was there, the temptation was there, the desire was there, but the desire for the glory of God was greater. That's how it works. Joseph resisted God-fearing people like Job and Paul endured because they were alert, they were awake. Alert to the enemy's ploys. Their minds and their hearts were consumed with the glory of God already, so when the enemy showed up, they were ready. They were prepared. And that's how it works. Our hearts and our minds have to be firmly fixed already. If we're asleep when the enemy shows up, we're in big, big trouble. If there isn't this constant inner dialogue of God-focused prayerfulness dominating our hearts and our feelings and our instincts and our attitudes, then when trials come, and they will come, then we will succumb to the temptation to discontentment and self-pity and bitterness and the rest. And when temptations come, and they do, they always will because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us, But if we're not awake, if we're not ready in prayerfulness, then the trials and the temptations are going to eat us alive. And this is what Paul is saying here. Be watchful. Don't be lazy spiritually. Don't be listless spiritually. Keep your eyes wide open spiritually. Be always on the alert for the things that you're spiritually vulnerable to. And that's his description of this inner inner disposition of constant prayerfulness to our God. The thing that keeps us spiritually alert, the thing that protects us from spiritual laziness is that prayer. This inner cultivation of that spiritual disposition when we're forsaking self and fixing our focus on His glory so that gratitude and thankfulness towards Him guards our hearts. And keeps us focused on all of the right things. And that overwhelms selfish ambition and pride and fleshly desire. And it keeps us safe. Focused on God and His glory instead of self. And this this isn't just instruction by Paul to other Christians, right? This is exactly how Paul lived his own life. Where's Paul when he's writing the letter of Colossians? He's never even been to this church, by the way. He's only heard that a church got planted in a place called Colossae and that they're struggling with some stuff. And and he's so burdened to help that he writes this letter and sends it back with a messenger. But but why doesn't he go himself? It's because he's in prison. (laughs) 
when he's writing this letter. He's in prison in Rome. He's been falsely accused. He's been slandered. He's been wrongly arrested. And he, he got shipped to Rome so that he could make an appeal to Caesar. And when he got there, and remember, it was after a pretty harrowing journey at sea, in God's kindness, Paul wasn't just thrown in with the rest of the common criminals. He was put under house arrest. He was, he was allowed to live in a house in Rome but he had to be under the constant watch of a Roman guard, chained to a, a, a Roman Praetorian guard day and night so that he couldn't leave. And he lived like that for two years. And during that time, he wrote four books at least of the New Testament, including this one, including the book of Colossians. And the point is, see, that in the middle of, of all of this ongoing tribulation that Paul's enduring in his life, he's not focused on himself. He's not complaining about everything he's going through. He's not spending his days writing petitions for his release and, 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 and trying to appeal to some governing authority about how unfairly and unjustly he's been treated. He's spending time writing the New Testament scriptures. He's not telling everyone he sees about how bad he's got it. He's not trying to convince everybody about what a, what a good guy he is in opposition to how he's been treated. He's telling them all about how awesome Christ is. He's, he's taking the opportunity to convince everybody about Jesus' excellency and sufficiency. He's not even praying that the, the prison doors will be open like they were in Philippi, right? Instead, he's praying that doors will be open to the gospel. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word so that we may declare the mysteries of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Pray that this imprisonment would lead to even greater opportunity for the gospel. That's what he's praying for. That's what happened in Philippi, isn't it? God did open the doors. God let the chains fall off their hands. But they didn't go anywhere. They stayed. They weren't thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about their freedom. They weren't thinking about their rights. They weren't thinking about their desires. They were singing hymns to the praise of God's glory. And they took the opportunity in the morning when the jailer showed up to preach the gospel to him and everybody in his household and everybody in the jailer's household repented and believed and got baptized. Hallelujah, Paul says. For the opportunities for the gospel and the glory of God to be magnified through my suffering because he's not self-focused. He's cultivated a heart of God-focused prayerfulness and dependency. And so here, he's, he's in chains and his God-centered, gospel-saturated, steadfastly praying, thankful mind and soul it, he's got no room inside. He's got no time for, for the concerns of self or for fleshly attitudes. All he can ask prayers for while he's chained up there in Rome is that in this circumstance, God, again, might use him to, to make the gospel clear. Paul also wrote the book of Philippians during this same time frame from imprisonment there in Rome. And here's what he says there in Philippians 1.12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, right? All this trouble and persecution and suffering and imprisonment, it's, it's really just served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard 
and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So see, the whole time he's chained up to this one guard in the house in Rome, he's, he's constantly writing letters, he's constantly talking to other Christians who come visit him, and he's constantly telling that guy, that unbelieving Roman guard, about Jesus, and that guy's telling other guards, and it's starting to spread like wildfire. It's magnificent, isn't it? Paul did not see his circumstances as a, an opportunity to complain or be desperate. It was an opportunity of eternal proportions. And that vanquished the bitterness and the anger and the vengeance and the discontentment and the self-pity and the rest of it in his heart. Because he was remaining constant in steadfast prayer. He was watchful and he was thankful to God in every circumstance. So that he saw and he responded to it all through this lens of God's sovereign goodness and faithfulness. Through this lens of the supremacy and the excellency of Jesus Christ. And through the lens of the eternal glory and the power of the gospel. That's what it means to be watchful and thankful in constant prayerfulness. To cultivate this attitude within ourselves day by day, minute by minute that is God-focused and consumed with all of His glory, all of His power, all of His holiness and transcendence, all of His goodness and faithfulness and kindness and grace and mercy and love, so that when the trials come, what comes out of us is that prayerful dependence. When the temptation comes, what comes out of us is self-control and restraint and a confession that God's glory matters more than our desires. And when good things happen, what comes out of us is gratefulness and thankfulness and a mindfulness of all of the ways in which God provides for us, big and small, every single day of our lives, which also bolsters us up when things get tough, doesn't it? Don't forget, when things get tough, how good God is to you, has been to you, has promised to be to you in ways that are eternally magnificent and in ways that are minuscule and small, God is good to us every single day. And if we're grateful to Him for that and mindful of all of that, then when hard things come, we can not only remember that He uses them for our good, but there are plenty of pleasant times and circumstances and great blessings that we can be thankful for that help us not to be bitter, that help us not to be despairing, self-pitying, feeling sorry for ourselves, feeling like we don't deserve this, discontent, and the rest. And so today, what I want us to do is to pray together that God will help us to cultivate this in our lives every single day. We're not going to do it perfectly, trust me. You're going to fail, and you're going to blow it, and you're going to succumb to temptation. And you're not going to face trials with a great attitude a lot of times. But every time we fall down, our God is good and patient and kind to pick us back up and dust us back off and put band-aids on all of our wounds spiritually and say, let's go again. Let's do better. By my strength, continue to strive. And so let's pray together that God will help us not to just waste our time and waste our lives and waste our circumstances, but to see them as opportunities that He gives us in this life to put the glory of Christ on display and to become more and more God-dependent and less and less self-reliant. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll sing.
to His glory. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are to You for all that You are and for all of Your kindness to us. And Father, we acknowledge how this command and this exhortation to be constant in prayerfulness, to be watchful and thankful in constant prayerfulness, Father, is not a command that we're very good at obeying. And so, Father, we do say, help our unbelief. We do say, Father, help us strive in Your strength. We do say, Father, as we are seeking to work out the salvation that You have worked in us, be at work in us, Father, to give us all that we need to cultivate this disposition of heart that is focused on You constantly and watchful constantly so that when trials and temptations come, we can be prepared. And so, Father, help us glorify You in these ways. Keep us focused on You and not on ourselves. And help the the tenor of our hearts, Father, to sing praises to You and give thanks to You and rely on You regularly. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.